Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back, guys, and thank you so much for joining us again this week. Yeah, we've um, we've had a nightmare, haven't we, so far? Oh my god, we've had an absolute nightmare. It's been 21 minutes trying to get started to record. 21 minutes! Hey-ho, we're here now. Um, thank you for joining us once again, as Bethan said. It's great to have you back with us. Um, yeah, we're going to get pretty much stuck right in this week, aren't we? Yes, and a fair warning again. Not going to be a nice case, as always, but yeah, going to be one that's going to make us really sad again. And I would probably just say at this point, there is a racial slur in this case, um, like the worst racial slur that you could hear. So uh, it's it's here because it needs to be here for the um, for the telling of the story. So if if you really don't want to hear that, then then this is not the episode for you. But I would encourage anybody to listen to this because it's um, like super interesting. Yeah, it's a really important case that I think needs to be told, definitely. Um, But yeah, it's always really horrible when you have to put something into an episode that you would never say yourself. It is, yeah. It feels weird, but it is totally necessary. So Um, so let's get cracking then. So at Seeing Red, we are dedicated to bringing you stories of unspeakable acts of violence perpetrated by deeply disturbed individuals against innocent victims. Often the killers are caught and brought to justice. Other times the criminals evade justice and the case remains unsolved. But what if there was ever a case where the killers were caught, but just not brought to justice? What if the perpetrators of a brutal child murder even went as far as to publicly gloat about their crime and were still allowed to walk free? What if the victim was cruelly denied justice just because he was a teenage black boy who was caught on the wrong side of history? Well, sadly this did happen once upon a time, and even though most of you will have never heard of this case before, the ramifications of this heartbreaking event literally set the stage for one of the most empowering and successful political movements of all time, the civil rights movement. The Civil Rights Movement, which is also commonly known as the American Civil Rights Movement, was a decades-long campaign by African-American citizens to end legal racist discrimination, disenfranchisement and racial segregation in the United States of America. The movement originated during the Reconstruction Era, during the late 19th century, shortly after the end of the American Civil War and the subsequent abolishment of slavery. The abolishment of slavery has been the subject of a lot of heated debate all around the world since George Floyd was murdered, but it's absolutely vital to our societal progress that we all agree on one undeniable fact. Racism did not die when slavery was abolished. Racism survived. Racism continued to exist for many, many years thereafter, and racism still lives to this very day. Yeah, and I think similar to what we mentioned in last week's episode, sometimes it's easy to kind of think this happened years and years and years ago or hundreds of years ago. And actually, some things that happen are in our lifetime or our parents' lifetime, some of the cases that we've covered. And it is really shocking. You think you've come so far and we haven't. Yeah, I think, you know, it's easy to... Um, think you could almost kind of uh, disassociate yourself from it but it is part of our history um, a part of our very immediate history really. 
So after decades of struggle, the civil rights movement saw its most significant legislative gains in the 1960s after many months of intensified protests and also a rise in activist groups whose mostly non-violent political and social campaigns eventually achieved them their ultimate victory, a permanent reform of the law for the human rights of all Americans. Arguably one of the most key figures in the movement's success other than Martin Luther King was an African-American lady who you may have heard of, Rosa Louise Macaulay Parks an activist best known for her pivotal role in prompting the Montgomery bus boycott. Yeah, she's a lady that you just hear about through all, you know, throughout history, don't you? Just, she was just incredible. Yeah, and we're going to dive into her story a little bit in this episode. So Rosa Parks has since been described as the first lady of civil rights and also the mother of the freedom movement. And this episode isn't all about Rosa Parks, but in case you don't fully know her story, it goes like this. Rosa Louise Macaulay was born in February 1913 to a poor black family in Tuskegee, Alabama. She was of both African and Scottish descent. A small, weak and sickly child who suffered from chronic tonsillitis and other recurring health ailments. As a black girl living with a black family in pre-depression North America, Rosa quickly learned the tough lessons about what it meant to be black in Alabama. The Ku Klux Klan would regularly march outside the family house as her father stood guard on the front porch, vigilantly armed with a shotgun. Can you imagine that? You can't imagine your life being like that, can you? And that was just normal. That was just totally normal to them. Harassment, assault, rape and even murder of innocent black civilians by racist groups in Alabama were sadly commonplace and almost all cases went largely unchallenged by law enforcement. Many black families in her town lived in extreme poverty due to a staggering imbalance in wage rates which greatly favoured white workers. Every day, Rosa would see the school bus full of white children on their way to school, while she and her black friends had to walk. The school she attended was regularly targeted and attacked by racist arsonists, and she was relentlessly harassed and even physically bullied by her white classmates for her skin colour. Even her teachers were often publicly ostracised and even assaulted in the street for the social crime of teaching black children to read and write. Despite heavy and often terrifying adversity, Rosa remained mentally resilient and showed a certain toughness that was rarely seen amongst her fellow black pupils. Despite her tiny build, Rosa would regularly clench her fists and physically fight back against the bullies. And despite the danger of doing so, she was never afraid to verbalise her disapproval of the rampant inequality that was at that time all around her. During those early school years, she showed high intelligence and a natural academic flair, and she worked incredibly hard to get good grades. At the time, this would have been considered a fruitless effort. Black females, regardless of their grades or potential, could not hope for anything better than a low-end job on pitiful wages. This was the bleak reality that all black young Americans had to face up to back then. 
There was a world reserved especially for white folk, and it was vastly different to the world that was set aside for blacks. Most just accepted it. Rosa could not. The years went by and Rosa eventually dropped out of the school to care for her sick mother and grandmother. She met and married a man named Raymond Parks and assumed his surname. Through him, she joined the Montgomery chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, NAACP, a civil rights movement that ensured victims of racially motivated crime received the best possible legal and financial support, and she joined this organisation as a secretary. She was the only woman in the entire organisation, but she was permitted to work there because she showed impressive intellect and secretarial skills. So we're talking about racism a lot, but I just thought that was so interesting because that, for me, really touches on sexism as well, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And she's the sort of woman that I really want my daughter to grow up kind of hearing about and knowing about because she really was somebody who kind of being the only woman there and that sort of thing, like even without the the racism and the side of things that she faced with her skin colour, Um, the fact that she uh, kind of rose above everything as well with being a woman so yeah she's just so inspirational. Rosa also remained fiercely active in the struggle for equal rights and with each incidence of racial injustice that took place on an almost daily basis she became ever more determined to take a more radical decisive step towards achieving her end goal absolute social equality. Rosa Parks' story of defiance and courage in the face of institutionally racist discrimination is, as you said at the beginning, now legend. The simple act of refusing to surrender her bus seat to a white man created a renewed sense of fight and purpose within the ranks of the movement, and countless African-American activists and political representatives were inspired to fight harder than ever before. However, at the heart of this story, hidden away and largely forgotten about, is a tragic story of savage brutality and unspeakable violence against an innocent black child. And I think, as you said, and like largely unforgotten, uh, largely forgotten, I should say, um, is so true because this isn't a case that I knew much about at all. I think I knew like a bit about the case, but I didn't know the name. Um, Yeah, shocking, really. We should all know about this. We should. And what what's so um, beautiful about, about this story is that it comes full circle back to Rosa towards the end. Um, so, so we'll come back to that and, and, um, and what prompted her to, to take a stand on that bus. So through Rosa's work at the NAACP, she learned about a brutal, racially aggravated murder of a teenager that would go on to send waves of outrage throughout the black community and serve as rocket fuel for the civil rights movement. So before we get to that, let's hear from this week's show sponsor. Um, so back to the story then. So on August the 21st in 1955 in Money, Mississippi, or it could be Money, I don't know, a 14-year-old black teenager named Emmett Till walked into a small grocery store with the intention of buying some sweets. Till was not a local of the town of Money. I'm going to call it Money. Um, so he'd been born and raised in Chicago and had only planned to be in town for a few weeks to spend some time with his extended family and also to experience what life was like in the South. 
described as handsome, stocky and muscular, Till was not accustomed to the dangerous realities of life in the South. Before Till had left Chicago to journey down to Mississippi, his mother had cautioned him that he was travelling to a very dangerous place. Chicago and Mississippi were two very different worlds and he was urged to take great care and be mindful of how to behave in front of white people in the South. Till assured his mother that he understood and that everything would be fine. He'd been in town for just one day when he entered Bryant's grocery store, which was owned and managed by a white man called Roy Bryant. However, on this day, Roy had just left town on a seven-day sea fishing trip, so the store was being minded by his wife, Carolyn. What exactly happened in the store that day has always been widely disputed, but 21-year-old Carolyn originally claimed that Till had attempted to flirt or otherwise make unwanted, friendly conversation with her, even going as far as attempting to grab her by the waist. Till may have wolf-whistled at Carolyn. His cousin, Simeon Wright, who was with him at the store, stated that Till whistled at Carolyn, adding, I think Emmett wanted to get a laugh out of us or something. He was always joking around and it was hard to tell when he was being serious. So, really, they were just in that store messing around like two 14-year-olds would do. But it's also very possible, given the hateful and racist mentality of many white people back then, that Till did absolutely nothing wrong. And we'll talk about this more later, but the true events of what really happened in the store may never actually be known. Either way, the woman did not appreciate Till's presence in the store and angrily ran outside to retrieve a gun from her car. So you may be thinking that was a bit extreme, um, an extreme reaction by Carolyn, and you'd be justified for thinking that because, you know, back then it was different. This is 1955. The state of Mississippi was firmly under the rule of what was known as the Jim Crow laws. The Jim Crow laws were a collection of state and local statutes that legalised racial segregation. Named after a black minstrel show character, the laws, which existed for about 100 years from the post-Civil War era until 1968, were meant to marginalise African Americans by denying them the right to vote, hold jobs, get an education or seek other opportunities. Those who attempted to defy Jim Crow laws often faced arrest, fines, jail sentences, violence and even death. To put this in plain English, black people were treated like absolute shit. It is mental to know that these are like state and local statutes. It's absolutely ridiculous. That there was a law to enforce white people being horrible to black people. So black people were very much treated and viewed as second-rate citizens, inferior to their white counterparts in every single conceivable way. Segregation, which was basically the enforced separation of black people from white people, was the norm. Black people were not allowed to use the same vehicles, services, homes or public resources as white people. Statistics on white on black lynching incidents began to be collected in 1882 and since that time more than 500 African Americans have been killed by extrajudicial violence in Mississippi alone and more than 3,000 cases of white on black murder have been recorded across the southern states. The rate of these incidents peaked between 1876 and 1930 
and by the 1950s they had become far less common, but they still occasionally occurred. Another fundamental Jim Crow law was rigorously enforced throughout the southern states, and it was the strict prohibition of interracial relationships. This was mainly to prevent mixed-race reproduction. It just pains me to say that. Oh my god, it's horrific to even say. Yeah, and it was there to maintain white supremacy. And at that time, it was obviously taken incredibly seriously. But yeah, it's, you know, to to have to sort of say that and, and say that that was happening really in certainly in my parents' lifetime is, you know, just just terrible, isn't it? So even the mere suggestion of sexual contact between a black man and a white woman could carry severe and often deadly consequences for the black man. Jesus Christ, so that's the thing. Like Emmett's just thinking he's making a joke and he's maybe being flirty. I mean, even if he was being flirty, you know, you would just kind of brush it off. Oh, but yeah. she's just taken absolute exception to that. And we will we will go into the exact events in that store in a bit more detail. Like I said, we, we're not 100% sure on exactly what happened, but much more did subsequently come out. So we, we will come on to it. So all of this should make clear just how serious a situation young Emmett Till had gotten himself into that day. In essence, he had breached one of the most sacred demarcations of the Jim Crow era by engaging in sexual flirtation across racial lines. Emmett fled the scene, but the damage had already been done. He may have been young, but he was not stupid. He knew he was in grave trouble now, so he ran to his uncle's home where he was staying, but he didn't tell anyone at the house what had just happened. Probably because he was scared to get into further trouble and hoped it would just die down. So he kept a low profile and asked his uncle if he could be allowed to return to his hometown of Chicago. And it's not clear how that conversation went, but for reasons which remain unknown, Emmett Till made the fateful decision to remain at his uncle's house and hope for the best. One week later, when Roy Bryant, that's Carolyn's husband, returned from his fishing trip and learned what had taken place in his store, he was consumed with rage. Jesus, a week later, so Emmett's been back at his uncle's house thinking, do you know what? I was a dick, but I got away with this. Or like, oh. I think so. <gasps> That's horrific. Yeah, I I think he'd probably had, yeah, a whole week where nothing had come from it. So he was thinking, I'm safe. It's okay. Yeah. And then, you know, he was happy to kind of stay in Mississippi. He wanted to be there for a few weeks. Oh, God. So he was unable to let such a heinous act slide and he saw a violent and bloody retribution. He enlisted the help of his older half-brother, John Milam, and together they set out to hunt Till down. The two men took to the streets and began violently interrogating several young black teenagers on where Emmett Till was, even going as far as kidnapping one of them after mistakenly identifying him as Emmett. He was only released after Carolyn Bryant herself confirmed that they'd picked up the wrong boy. Back in 1955, Money was, and still is, an exceedingly small town. Back then it consisted of just three stores, a school, a post office, a cotton gin, and just a few hundred residents. Therefore, it did not take long for the two men to eventually close in on the real Emmett Till. At around 2am on August 28th in 1955, Bryant and Milam drove to Emmett Till's uncle's house. Milam was armed with a pistol and a flashlight, and when Emmett's uncle answered the door to him, Milam demanded to speak to that nigger that did the talking. 
Milam entered the house and found young Emmett sleeping upstairs in a small room with some of his cousins. Milam woke him and demanded he get up and get dressed. His great aunt then appeared and offered the men money to just let the whole thing go and leave peacefully. But Milam staunchly refused the offer as he forced Emmett to put on his clothes. Emmett's uncle also pleaded with the men to spare the child, explaining that the boy was from up north and did not know any better. Milam responded by asking, How old are you, preacher? To which Emmett's uncle responded, 64. Milam threatened that if he or any of the family told anybody about what they had seen, he would not live to see 65. Milam then marched Till out to the truck where Bryant was waiting. Emmett Till was then asked by Bryant if he had been the one to talk to his wife in the store that day. He immediately confessed that it was indeed him, and he must have at least had some idea at this point of the terrible fate that was to befall him. But he confessed, and I think that shows extreme bravery and defiance. It makes that even more extraordinary. He knew that confessing would probably bring about the fate that would befall him. He took a stance to protect or prevent violence towards the other people in the house, effectively sacrificing his own safety to secure theirs. He may also have wrongly assumed that the men would let him go if he owned up. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. You might be thinking, well, uh, maybe they just want to know who it is. And like, I don't know, I... I just can't even imagine what's going through his head, bless him. So either way, his honesty was to cost him his life. Emmett Till was tied up and forced into the back of the truck. The men then drove away in the direction of the town. Till was taken to a barn in a remote location and was savagely pistol-whipped and beaten into a bloody, disfigured mess. After that, they drove the broken and barely conscious Till to a nearby river and finished him off with a shotgun blast to the head before throwing his body over a bridge and into the water below. Oh my God, that is absolutely brutal. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Emmett Till's battered and broken body was discovered three days later with barbed wire wrapped around his throat and tied to a car fan blade, presumably to make his body sink to the bottom. He was 14 years old. The subsequent arrest and trial of Roy Bryant and John Milam was even more shocking and unjustified than the murder itself. Despite the exceptionally brutal nature of the lynching, the trial attracted a large press following mainly because it was the first time in legal history in Mississippi that a black man was to implicate a white man in a crime. During the trial, Carolyn Bryant testified that Till grabbed her hand while she was stocking candy and asked her out on a date. She went on to say that after she freed herself from his grasp, the young man followed her to the cash register and continued to grab her by the waist. She claimed that this encounter only ended when one of Till's companions came into the store. It was noted that the all-white, all-male jury were permitted to drink cold beer and smoke cigarettes during the trial proceedings. What the fuck? Oh my god. I know. Seriously. 
They were seen laughing and sneering as black witnesses gave their testimony. And although they were forced to admit that Bryant and Milan were probably guilty, they refused to acknowledge that the death penalty or even a prison term was warranted. What the hell? So they even admitted, like, yeah, they probably did do it, but we're still not going to... Yeah, just because it it was a crime against a black person perpetrated by two white men. But this kid was 14. Oh, my God. Yeah. Addressing the jury directly, the defence lawyer in the case said that the jury's forefathers would turn over in their grave if they convicted Bryant and Milam. At the time, only three outcomes were possible in Mississippi for capital murder. Life imprisonment, the death penalty, or acquittal. On September the 23rd in 1955, the jury took a pitiful 67 minutes to deliberate and acquit both men of all charges held against them. Jesus Christ, that's ridiculous. Yeah, so they've not even bothered. Oh my God. You know, they've just, they've just gone in with their preconceived idea of what their brand of justice is. One of the jury members even arrogantly told reporters, If we hadn't stopped to smoke and drink soda, it wouldn't have even taken that long. Oh my God, it just gets worse. Yeah. (sighs) In later interviews, other jury members acknowledged that they knew without a doubt that Brian and Milan were guilty, but simply did not believe that life imprisonment or the death penalty were appropriate punishments for whites. Brian and Milan walked away as free men. Later, in an interview with Time magazine, Milam admitted and even bragged that it was indeed himself and Bryant that killed Till, and he revealed that they first intended to give him a beating and release him in order to frighten him and teach him some manners. However, as they were beating him, Till defiantly called them bastards and claimed that he was just as good as they were. This further enraged them. They then decided that he should die. Do you know what? I know obviously it ended with him being killed, but fair play to him for still holding his own just whilst all this is happening to him. I thought exactly the same. You know, he it was dignified, you know, for, as far as he was concerned until the end. He stood up for himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he owned up and said what he had done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Despite this public admission of guilt... The then double jeopardy law decreed that neither Bryant nor Milam could be tried for the same crime twice. End of story. They'd gotten away with outright murder and they relished in it. The two self-confessed murderers lived out the rest of their days as free men. John Milam died of cancer on the 31st of December in 1980. Roy Bryant died of cancer on the 1st of September in 1994. Carol Ann Bryant is still alive. In 2008, Ms. Bryant agreed to an interview with a historian named Tim Tyson. Although he failed to capture it on tape, he claimed that Ms. Bryant had recounted her entire courtroom testimony and admitted that none of what she said was true. When asked what really happened in the store that day, she claimed that she simply could not remember. That is horrific. How can you not remember when it's something so major that happened in your life? I think she. I think she probably could remember. I think she just couldn't admit. It's been this long. That I actually, could admit it. yeah, exactly. And you know, die with some sense of kind of self worth and peace. 
So um, Carolyn Bryant suffers from rheumatoid arthritis and she's losing her eyesight and she mostly relies on a wheelchair now. And sources close to her claim that she has said privately that the Emmett Till case has kept her a prisoner ever since the verdict was read out. So, you know, I'm not saying I feel any sympathy for her whatsoever, but she was in possibly quite a, a, you know, domineering marriage and she told her husband what happened. And, you know, maybe she had no control over what happened next. But equally, she didn't need to tell him and she didn't need to go and get a bloody shotgun from a car when Emmett Till was in the store. Yeah, and I, I appreciate she was 21 at the time. So like you said, her husband was probably quite in charge. But yeah. So going back to 1955, the crime and the trial's verdict was met with silence and indifference amongst the general white population but it sent huge shockwaves of disbelief and anger throughout America's black community. It soon became apparent that this was the final straw that broke the donkey's back. The black community had finally had enough. As the sleeping giant stirred, it became apparent that change was inevitable and across the country African-American activists were mentally gearing up and ready to fight back against such intolerable oppression. All they needed was a hero, someone to inspire them into action by being the first to take the stand and it didn't take very long. Four months after the murder of Emmett Till on December the 1st in 1995 in Montgomery, Alabama at around six o'clock on a wet and chilly Thursday evening, Rosa Parks quietly boarded a Montgomery City Lines bus to begin her short commute home after working a long day as a low-paid seamstress. She paid the driver her fare and walked down the aisle past several empty seats in the front section and then sat in the first row of seats in the middle slash rear section of the bus that were visibly marked out as being reserved for black people. The bus pulled away and began to travel along its regular route, making several stops along the way to pick up more passengers. With each stop the bus was taking on more and more people and the bus was filling up fast. It did not take long before all the white-only seats were filled with white passengers. When the bus pulled up to its stop outside the Empire Theatre, it was now already filled to capacity. A few more white passengers boarded and found that there were no seats available. Before continuing any further, the bus driver got up and walked down the aisle towards a middle section of the bus. He stopped next to the woman took the coloured-only sign and moved it one row directly behind her, thus creating an extra row of seats in the white aisle and pushing the black's aisle further back. Then, with a wave of his hand and an impassive tone, he turned to the woman and the three other black males sat on the same row as her and said, You'd better make it light on yourselves and give me these seats. At first, none of the four black passengers moved or even spoke. Rosa looked at the driver's face and froze. He did not seem to know her, but she recognised him. She'd encountered this man before and their first meeting was not a pleasant one. Eight years earlier in 1943, the same driver whose name was James F. Blake had publicly chastised Rosa for entering his bus through the front doors a privilege that was strictly reserved for white people only. I just can't even imagine that, 
you are not allowed to get on the bus in the same way as someone else. No, or or at the same the same kind of doors that you've got to use the rear door. It's just weird. I find it really weird. I can't really get my head around how oppressive it was back then. And I, I know there's still a massive problem now. But, you know, if we go back this kind of 50, 60 years, um, it's just unbelievable. So going back to this initial encounter eight years earlier, Rosa stepped off as she was instructed, but chose instead to wait outside in the pouring rain for the next bus, silently vowing never to ride with him again. Now, filled with anger at the humiliating memory of their first meeting, the woman instinctively pulled her bag to her chest. Blake quickly became frustrated by the initial non-compliance of his inferior black passengers and repeated the order in a more direct manner by saying, Give me these seats, at which point the three black males reluctantly stood up and moved further back, leaving the woman to face off with Blake alone. Blake stared down at the woman and calmly asked her, why don't you stand up? With equal calmness, Rosa replied, I don't think I should have to stand up. Blake wasn't about to back down. He knew full well that he had complete authority on his bus, which was backed and enforced by state law. Well, he said as he stared at her, if you don't give up these seats, I'll have to call the police and have you arrested. You may do that. She shrugged. I just absolutely love her. And I cannot get over the other men that that did give up. And we kind of go back again to what we were saying at the beginning, um, where she not only had the the difficulty of being a black person, but she's also a woman. So she's like doubly inferior. And she is still, oh, she's just incredible. And I also think, you know, I don't blame those three black men that um, complied with the bus driver because you know, maybe they felt more threatened that he would potentially get violent with them, whereas, that you know, Rosa might have thought that he wouldn't do that with her. I don't know. Or even just that they were doing what they knew they had to do by law, yeah. which is shit, but they maybe were just like, do you know what, it's not worth my job or it's not worth my family. And also what they'd been conditioned to do every day of their life so far. It was normal to them. Rosa was arrested shortly thereafter and forcibly removed from the bus. As she was dragged away by a single police officer, she decided right there and then that it would be the last time she would ever be humiliated and oppressed. She had vowed to stand her ground, to find out once and for all what rights she had as a human being and a citizen of Alabama. As the drama unfolded, the other passengers on the bus and bystanders on the street probably figured that what they were seeing was a stubborn old black lady refusing to obey the law and being punished accordingly. At the time, it probably meant nothing to them beyond a minor disturbance of the social order, which caused a momentary delay in their journeys, or at most gave them something to tell their spouses about over supper. What they couldn't have known at that very moment was that they were witnessing history being made and a hero being born. And this seemingly insignificant episode on board a city bus would trigger a chain of events that greatly impacted the quality of life for countless millions of black people in the USA for generations to come. Years later, Rosa would explain that during the encounter with Blake, all she could think about was Emmett Till and she simply couldn't go back. To the young officer who was accosting her, Rosa was heard asking, why do you push us around? To which he replied, I don't know, but the law is the law and you're under arrest. 
That question asked by Rosa would echo throughout the subsequent campaign as a sort of rallying cry for other frustrated and oppressed black people to take a stand. Rosa was taken to the local police station and charged with a violation of Chapter 6, Section 11 under the segregation law of the Montgomery City Code of Public Misconduct. She spent a night in jail but was released on bail the next day pending trial. The following Monday she appeared in court and after a 30 minute trial she was found guilty of disorderly conduct. She was fined $10 with an additional $4 in court costs. Her act of defiance also cost Rosa her job as a seamstress and she received countless death threats. Rosa appealed against her conviction. To the NAACP, the Women's Political Council, the Civil Rights Movement and the American Black Community, she was no longer simply a secretary. She was now a symbol. She became a hero literally overnight. The very next day, the NAACP handed out over 35,000 handbills to black locals informing them of an immediate boycott of Montgomery Line buses of which they were all urged to take part in. Word spread rapidly throughout the state of Alabama, with news of Rosa's stand and the imminent bus boycott announced in all black churches, council meetings and even making the front page of the state newspaper. On the very first day of the boycott, not a single black passenger could be seen on any of the buses in Montgomery and this had a crippling effect on the bus company's revenue for that day, with many of the buses driving around with no passengers whatsoever. I love it because it just goes to show that you can do nothing and still make a huge difference and a big stand, and you don't necessarily have to go and be violent, but you could just do something like this, and it makes a huge difference. It's incredible. It did, like it, it crippled that company in one day. Realising that the boycott was going to work, the leaders of the black community decided to form the Montgomery Improvement Association in order to continue the boycott and lay down their demands. Employ black bus drivers, treat black seats as first come first served and treat black passengers with the same courtesy as white passengers. The movement had Rosa as their inspiration, but a stronger, more politically savvy leader was needed a local minister stepped up to take the reins. His name was Martin Luther King Jr. And the rest, as they say, is history. So that is the story of young Emmett Till and uh, the impact that his violent death had on one woman and her taking a stand and passing the reins on to Martin Luther King so uh, you know real deep dive into black history for us Um, but you know really I I want us to take a moment to remember Emmett Till he'd done nothing wrong he'd behaved in no different way to any other 14 year old lad that was on a bit of a vacation and uh, Carolyn Bryant took exception to that because of his skin colour and um, told her husband and that resulted in his brutal murder. Yeah absolutely I mean like 14 year old just acting up and being a bit of a fool around his friends and the fact that she's sort of said oh I don't really remember what he did and what he said and in the court thing she made it sound a lot worse he probably just made a bit of a wolf whistle or made a bit of a comment like something really nothing like a nothing comment and Mm. he had to lose his life for that in such a brutal way wow what what a horrific story and what a sad tale 
So um, I just wanted to say a massive thanks to Elliot Caddy, uh, who actually wrote this episode. He's, he's done a sterling job with it. Ah, uh, from Camino Digital Marketing. That is him, our friend Elliot. Yep. So um, do uh, check his company out for all your copywriting needs and other social media management type needs. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Elliot. It's um, it's an exhausting story to become familiar with and to convey now, but to have researched this and written it. Um, I think it really must have taken it out of him. So, um, so yeah, we're really grateful to, to you to bring in this to life. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Elliot. Yeah. As usual, you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and also YouTube. We're getting new subscribers every single day. So, uh, please do head over to our YouTube channel, uh, sign up and subscribe. We've got a few hundred people there. Well, I say that it's probably a couple of hundred. Um, and you get, uh, you'll see different photos and videos to accompany, uh, the different episodes that we've done. And we've done a few other random bits, or we're kind of in the process of it. Uh, so different chats that we've had over on there. Um, please do check us out on Patreon as well. Your support over on Patreon really makes a huge difference to the running of the show. And it's the people that support us through Patreon that ensure that we are around producing episodes on a weekly basis for free. Um, so yeah, do, do have a look. You can find us at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And you can sign up to support the show from anywhere in the world, from as little as $3 a month up to $10. No, we've got like higher tiers now Mm -hmm. Um, with all sorts of different benefits. You can just sign up for a month or a longer term, completely up to you. But I can't emphasize how much it means to us when people do do take the time to do that. Absolutely. And if you are a Patreon supporter, you will have a new Patreon special bonus episode out this Friday. You certainly will. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Take care and we'll see you next week. See you then. Bye. Bye.